A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Hi, everybody. It's another edition of Ramdas Here and Now. And I'm Raghu Marcus, back for a talk from Ramdas around relationships. And this talk is from April 1982 from Hawaii. Not far from, this was in Oahu. It's not far from where he lives now. So, interestingly enough, I started to listen to this talk, and I know it says it's a talk about relationships, but the whole first part of the talk is a setup for relationships, and that setup is around the reality of duality and non-duality, all form and formless and how form goes back to nothing. Out of nothing comes form. He talks about the space between thoughts, the discontinuity of consciousness, spaciousness, and how you are everything and nothing. So I was like, wow, this is what kind of setup for a talk around relationship. It was very curious. Uh, and I guess his intention was to really set up what our reality is once we become free and to have that in mind when we enter into any relationships um, because ultimately all forms change so the whole thing with any relationship is that it's doomed right from the beginning because sooner or later change happens and no matter how good you are at planning against it, inevitably it will happen. So it is always, of course, a good idea to steep oneself into the, uh, shall we say, spiritual reality of constant change and the uh, idea of form and formless and how we dance between the two. And uh, it's... Uh, he says, when part of you rests in your totality, where is your need then? Where is your desire? Where is it that you need something from that other person? And, and he talks about this. It's not just uh, uh, romantic partnerships. And we're talking about any kind of relationships. Uh, this really does apply to. Um, 
The place where there is only one of us is the same as the word love. I like that. And he said, look for a relationship where you can experience your soul. And that relationship brings you into a place of isness. Uh, by the way, this whole thing starts out with this great story, uh, the boatman story. I think he's told it in other talks, but it's, you know, the, the boatman is, uh, I'm not going to tell the whole story because I'll ruin it, but not really. Just the idea of the boatman, you know, in the fog, groping for what's out there and projecting what's not, how we do every day in relationships. Um, but the, um, here's the absolute, um, essence for me that I got out of this. And some of this I put in my own words and, uh, I have to say, uh, I, I, in my own experience, this is so right on. Once you have started to awaken and you're not coming from a needy place and looking to lock in so quickly with every relationship and so on, even though the truth is we have that need because we are human. We are in a human incarnation. And that need is absolutely there for all of us. But you're not, in the case of having started to awaken, you're not so identified with that need. Key, right? That, well, how do you get there? A lot of practice. So again, we keep going back to this. Practice, practice, practice. And because you are already resting in a place of love, and that takes self-love, self-compassion. So now you experience the sharing of love and oneness without fear. So then there, between two people, obviously at that point, there's not this arrow going back and forth uh, between a couple. In, in particular, we're talking about romantic uh, relationship, of course. You don't need that person to get into that space. You are already in it. And that's probably the key to any successful uh, relationship. And in my own case, I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, meet my wife, Saraswati. I talk about her uh, quite a bit in podcasts, maybe more on mind rolling. Uh, but uh, I was fortunate to meet her at Ramdas's. And we, uh, so we had an immediate affinity that was based on uh, a desire to connect in, the, in this place that we, we just mentioned, which is a spacious place, which is a place that's based on uh, love and not fear. And of course, uh, we have gone through it just like any couple goes through it. Uh, where that's not always the case because we are human and we do react. But uh, uh, we have found that uh, even in the most strained times where we're overloaded by work or whatever it may be, we always have that place to come back to, uh, which is the, f the place that we first found ourselves in 
which was uh, a love that is not conditioned on expectations. Um, and again, I don't want to like sound like we are the you know the optimum poster couple here, but um, but I do those words uh, and and what Ramdas resounds in this talk around relationships, around really getting uh, the more that we individually have our shit together. Uh, the less that we are groping in the dark with a partner and ex- and having gigantic expectations and wanting to change each other. So uh, it, it's extraordinarily important that, I mean, that that's a bargain we had um, from the very beginning. And and we were fortunate, and Ram Dass actually married us uh, in, uh, in his home in Maui. Uh, and uh, that was very much part of his uh, talk to us, which was to keep a triangle so that there the two points, and for us the third point was our guru, Neem Karoli Baba, that everything was put through his uh, consciousness. And that consciousness is uh, Satchitananda, truth uh, and bliss and wisdom. And so, uh, not to get too over the top here about my own little personal experience, but I certainly f- uh, really resound with the truth of, uh, of what Ramdas is talking about here, and that is really uh, working on ourselves. And in some cases, it's... it's, it's you know, if you're fortunate to do that work before you get with somebody, it would certainly make that relationship a hell of a lot um, more flowing. Absolutely more flowing. More spacious. So uh, it's a great talk here. I mean, we all have, uh, if we don't have a partner, we certainly have relationships with friends and so on, and all of this applies because it's the same uh focus around not uh, needing, neediness, not having to depend on someone else to get that love that is inside ourselves. Um, And by the way, I'm going to mention here that uh, we, because we're talking about doing the practice, 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 and we're going to be running a meditation course in July through ramdas.org. And um, it's four weeks, and each week there'll be a different guided meditation from Ramdas, and uh, a Dharma talk as well, and uh, an article. Uh, so it'll be a three pronged um, teaching and meditation every week for four weeks, ranging from. Uh, one-pointed concentration meditations to awareness meditations to guru meditation. Uh, it, it, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be, uh, I believe, really, really helpful, even for people who already have a sound meditative practice. And uh, at the end of it, uh, Ramdas is going to do a webcast uh, where people 
everybody will be able to ask questions that uh, that we will answer, not he will answer, on the webcast, and then beyond that uh, by email that we're going to do that. Uh, he and uh, Rameshwar Das, who is Ram Das's uh, co-writer on the last couple of books, Polishing the Mirror and Be Loved Now, and I may even throw in my opinion here and there myself. So here it is. Um, Ram Das uh, here and now on relationships. A uh, boatman is rowing on a misty lake. The fog is thick. Suddenly he bumps another boat. He starts to scream profanities at the other boatman for not looking where he was going. The fog clears for a moment and he looks at the other boat and sees that it's empty. That's really the essence of the lecture on relationships. All those things we're getting angry at and we are fascinated by, they are all just things happening. We keep identifying them with people. That's channel six. There are three terms in Buddhism that are focused on a great deal. Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. The Anicca we've talked about already, it means change. Everything's changing all the time. All forms are in a state of change, transformation, all the time. So there's nowhere you can grab hold and be sure it's going to be that way. Remember that poem called Ozymandias about a great king built a big empire and the poet is crossing the desert and he comes upon a piece of stone sticking out of the sand 
just one piece of stone, and there's an inscription on it, and he translates it, and it says, I am Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing more remained. All change. And this too shall pass. It was the king who was going to wipe out a group of people, minority group. The wise man of the minority group came to him and said, King, save us, save us. And he said, well, if by sunrise you can give me something when, which every time I'm sad will make me happy, I'll spare your lives. The wise men went into council and they thought and thought and finally they prepared a ring. In the morning they came and they presented the ring to the king and the king said, how will this ring make me happy when I'm sad? And they said, oh, sire, read the inscription in the ring. Description in the ring was, and this too shall pass. Every time he's sad, that too shall pass, and that made him happy. He hadn't yet noticed that it works the other way around, too. <laughs> it's all changing. It's all changing. The second of those three things is dukkha, which means suffering. Which means all form is limited. All form isn't infinite, it's finite. It's always contained or controlled. It's always pushing back into the formless, into the all. And any attachment to those forms is suffering. If you identify with the form, you will suffer because the form is changing and the form is bound. That's dukkha. And the third of those three things, anicca, dukkha, anatta, means that there is no self. There's no separate entity. There is no soul. That all is changing. It's just patterns of changing things. And in them there may be the illusion of a separate entity, of a me or of an I. But it's just a dream. Anatta, no self. You see, what I've been talking about yesterday had to do with channel four, with the concept of soul or an entity that reincarnates. But if you stop at that level of identifying yourself as a soul, there's still going to be suffering. Because a soul, no matter how subtle it is, is still something. And as long as you see yourself as something, you are separate from all the rest of it. So there's not even a one, a one. 
Because if you're two, if you're a little um, particle and you're going back into the source and you say there's the one, you're saying there's the one from outside of it, which means the two. And as you go into the one, there's no more counting. There's no one, there's no zero. To say that is empty is fallacious. To say that that is full is fallacious. Because any time you describe it or discriminate or label it, you're back in the two again. From within the one, there are no labels. There's no description. There's no, there's no way to conceive of yourself or of what is or isn't. And it's interesting that um, nuclear physicists like Oppenheimer, you know, Nobel Prize winning physicist, says about the smallest unit of energy in the universe. He says you can't exactly say that it exists. You can't exactly say that it doesn't exist. It's just that fine line between form and formless. So that you and I are using different systems, and I just think if we're clear about the systems, it's very useful. This is known as jnana yoga, of using the mind to see through the mind. If you see that you use the soul to extricate your identification with the soul to extricate yourself from identification with your personality and with your body, But then, as Ramakrishna says, you take a thorn to take another thorn out of your foot, and then you throw both thorns away. So that ultimately, the concept of soul, which helped free you from an identification with the personality, that itself must go too. So that if you're going to experience how you actually are, You are constantly surrendering every definition and every form into the emptiness. And all these words like saying, it just is, or I am, are just fingers pointing at the moon. They're not the moon. Because when you dwell where you stand nowhere, there's nobody in the boat. Now, most people are very attached to eternality. They want something of themselves to continue, their awareness, their consciousness. They don't want that little break in consciousness. So they want to know that the soul survives. When I ask Emmanuel about how upset people got when I said you go back into nothing, I said, they wanted to keep their separateness. He said, oh, you humans with your dualistic minds. It's great. Only dolphins and you know, disembodied beings can say, oh, you humans. I mean, I've never talked to anybody that said, oh, you humans before. 
Oh, you humans and your dualistic minds, why do you think you can't be the one and the many at the same moment? See, and to see that the nothing contains the everything and the everything is the many, you see that from inside there is no definition and from outside there's the many. And you are and you aren't. Can you handle that? Can you handle that you are and you aren't? It's such a subtle part of awareness to keep merging into itself and coming back into form and merging into itself and coming back into form. So that you see everything, thing, 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 every body, every personality, every astral identity, every soul, every subtle essence, thing, 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 thing is going back into nothing. And then out of the nothing comes the form again. It's like dealing with a space between two thoughts. It's going from the thought into the space between the thought. Between. And each thought has its creation, its existence, its destruction, and then space. Creation, existence, destruction, space. And the space between those thoughts well, the thoughts go by at the rate of about one trillion per blink of an eye. And there's a space between every one of them. And your awareness, as long as you identify it with thoughts, is limited by the rate at which thoughts can go by in a linear fashion, which is a physical thing. It's a chemical action. But your awareness isn't so limited. And by the discipline of extricating the awareness from identification with the thoughts, Buddha was able to see each thought. He stood outside of time and he saw each thought come into existence, exist, and pass away. And he described the last 32 thoughts before he went into the space between two thoughts. I mean, that makes science fiction look like tinker toys, if you can play with that, if that isn't too much for you. That's called Nibbana, the space between the thoughts, the discontinuity of consciousness. So in a way, when we talk about spaciousness, that's what we're talking about. We're talking a way in which you are everything and you are nothing. And you rest in that place. And then you come back down into forms. And you function in the forms impeccably. You're a perfect soul. You're a perfect personality. You're a perfect body. And your perfection, you're more perfect in your role the more you are resting nowhere. Now, when we come to relationship, you've got to see the relationship is between two things. No matter how subtle those things are, souls, 
That's relationship. But who you are has no relationship at one level, because how does the one relate? So that you see that what you are with another person is both separate and not separate. What would it be like if that were real for you all the time? Is this, can you, anybody hear this? You hear what I'm saying or is this too heavy or what? Huh? Yeah. yeah. Anybody here? See, most of us, because of our human hearts, we want to come down where it's sweet, where we're separate entities and there's relationship, because relationship is where all the drama is. It's where all the romance is. It's where all the coming and going is. It's where the storyline is. It's where the trip is. It's where the rush is. It's where the, can you hear all that? Listen to this and see how sweet it feels. The one. Here's the one. This is from the I Ching. The master said, Life leads the thoughtful man on a path of many windings. Now the course is checked. Now it runs straight again. Here, winged thoughts may pour freely forth in words, but there the heavy burden of knowledge must be shut away in silence. But when two people are at one in their inmost hearts, they shatter even the strength of iron or bronze. And when two people understand each other in their inmost hearts, their words are sweet and strong, like the fragrance of orchids. You can see that as two beings get close to one another, and don't get lost in the bodies, and don't get lost in the personalities, and the needs, the desires, the fears, the paranoia, and can get through, and they can meet as souls. They are getting very close to being an identity. Being the one and yet the two. It's the moment between formless and form. It's that space. It's an intimacy that is complete because it's an identity. Now, as long as you're in your body, you can't do that because bodies, as Ramana Maharshi said, what can bodies do but rub against each other? Gross, though, that might seem for something so sweet. Personalities can relate as objects. 
souls can look at something, the personality and the body from outside, they can start to go in and out of one another, but they're still unique. But at some moments they come together and then there's just, there's neither one nor two nor anything on there's everything. And it doesn't matter which relationship we're talking about. Whether we're talking about the policeman or the lover or the child or the employer or the enemy or the opponent. We keep getting lost in the forms, in the labels in who we think we're seeing and who we think we're relating to. We keep getting lost in the labels and in what our senses tell us and our thinking minds discriminate. And we fail to see through that veil. See that there's another soul and then to merge into the one. Let's imagine for a moment that you could do that. That you as an individual had so little attachment to your own separateness that you could be in the world but not of the world. You could be separate and yet not separate. So that you were always right here beyond form and also in form. Now you meet another person. Because there's part of you resting in your totality, where is your need? Where is your desire? Where is it that you need something from that other person? So at that moment when you are resting deeply in your isness, Since you don't need anything from the other person, even the subtlest thing, you don't even need them to keep from killing you. Because you don't need anything. You just are here. And if you talk about consciousness, you say you are here. If you talk about love, you would say you are unconditionally loving. You're in love with another person and you have no conditions. There's no way you have to be for me to love you. I just love you because I am you. And the place where there's only one of us is the same word as love. One of the words we use to point at it is love. Mayor Baba said, love has to spring spontaneously from within. It is in no way amenable to any form of inner or outer force. Love and coercion can never go together. Love can never be forced on anyone. It can be awakened in her or him through love itself. 
Love is essentially self-communicative. Those who do not have it catch it from those who have it. True love is unconquerable and irresistible. And it goes on gathering power and spreading itself until eventually it transforms everyone whom it touches. It's the story of the invading army that was invading a country, a Buddhist country, and they were disemboweling the Buddhist monk. They arrived in this country and the, uh, a particularly cruel officer whose reputation had spread far and wide came into a village and he said to his adjutant, give me a report about the village. And the adjutant said, all of the people are afraid of you and they're doing obeisance to you. And the monks in the local monastery have all fled to the mountains, except for one monk. The officer was furious at the thought of this monk who was not afraid of him. So he walked to the monastery and he pushed open the gates of the monastery. And there in the middle of the courtyard was the monk. And he walked up to the monk and he said, Don't you know who I am? I could take my sword and I could run it th through your belly without blinking an eye. And don't you know who I am, said the monk? I could have your sword run through my belly without blinking an eye. That's what I mean by resting in a part of yourself that is not identified, even with your body. So where is the vulnerability? No vulnerability, you can afford to love unconditionally the entire universe. The universe loving itself. So when they say that the guru loves unconditionally, that's what we're talking about talking about the one loving itself. Now in our relationships with one another, many of the relationships you keep very much on the physical and psychological plane. They're functional and efficient. The fellow with the gas station pumps gas. The bank teller exchanges money. And you keep it all at that level of role and body. And very rarely do you acknowledge that there are any other levels to those relationships. You keep them that way. Then people look for another kind of relationship. 
They look for a relationship in which they can experience their soul. Where they can experience even beyond that, where they can experience what they call love. In other words, they would like to use their relationship with another pe person as a vehicle to bring them into that place of oneness, of peace, of isness, of love, of consciousness. And you see how exquisite the whole design of the game is, is that attraction, sexual attraction, which leads to reproduction, is one of the things that aligns people to allow them to come into that space of transcendence and the moment of orgasm is a moment of transcendence. So that the game is designed so that that yearning to come back into the one is what facilitates the reproduction of the species. But momentarily. Even if you're a tantric, you can spread it out for an hour. But. So people meet somebody, and because of some set of compatible, symbiotic, complementary characteristics, they are attracted to each other. And through a certain, because of that alignment, it's as if that's the chemical release mechanism that allows them to open to the part of themselves that has no form. And they say, I am in love. I am experiencing love. But as we said before, methods are traps. And you keep identifying your method with where it brings you. So you end up, instead of saying, I am in love, you say, I am in love with you. It's like if you're a meditator, you say, I am in love with meditation. Because meditation brings me into the place of love. So I am in love with you. And because I identify you with the method of how I get into the place of love, because I can't get there on my own, and you're a method that's built into the system, it's kind of because I'm a part of a species, I want to possess you because you're my connection. And I want to know where you're going to be next Thursday at 2. And I want to collect you. And I say, come on, let's build a nest. And I collect twigs. But now you are experiencing that oneness, but you're experiencing it via a form, and you know somewhere in your being that all forms change. So the whole thing is doomed right at the beginning. And there's fear in that, because you know that sooner or later, sooner or later something changes. No matter how good you are at trying to plan against it, like Ozymandias, it's all going to change. And that's what makes romantic poetry so poignantly beautiful, because it always has in it the pain and the fear 
and the inevitability of change, of death, of transformation, of falling away, of attachment, of all that stuff. For some of us, our rush is just from that kind of romantic, bittersweet quality of a relationship. The horrible beauty, that's the word for it, the horrible beauty. Horrible beauty. Such a fine line of love and hate, love and fear. But sometimes, after you have started to awaken and you are resting in your being more and more, you're not walking around as a needful entity looking to lock in so quickly, even though the needs are still there because the sp you are part of a species, but you're not so long identified with that. The mechanism still works to line you up with another being but you're already resting in the place of love. So now you experience the sharing of love with another person, the sharing of the oneness, but it's without fear because you don't need that other person to be in it. You are already in it. It's entirely different. It's entirely different. Because as long as you need the other person for you to feel what it means to be in love, you are vulnerable, you are off balance, you are frightened, you are grabbing and grasping and angry and having models of how the other person should be, and you are creating suffering all the time. It's built into the card. The minute your love comes out of love, whole different ballgame. Coming, going, also. But it's complicated for those of us humans that have come through personalities and deprivation models. You meet somebody, you are resting in love and you meet somebody and you feel that love with them. You feel like you've just, the two of you have just come into oneness together. And it's extremely sweet. It's like lining up on planes. You're already in channel six, but now you're also lining it up in channel five, four, three, two, one. And your old model of yourself as somebody who needs something, the deprivation model says, let's build a nest, and you get your twigs and do your thing. And then, after a while, you say, well, I'm going to the supermarket to get tofu and yogurt. And you're at the checkout counter, and you look into the eyes of the person at the checkout counter. And there it is again. Because you're in love. And everyone you look at is your beloved, more or less, unless there's some reason you're seeing them as, you're not my beloved. But as you're resting in the place of love, you see love. You just start to see it. And 
some other people rise to it too and so you meet this person at the checkout counter and you still are functioning under your old deprivation model so you say have you considered a menage a trois because I may go home and the one in the nest may not be there so I'll collect you too from here on it gets complicated politically and economically socially because from now on you better not look in anybody's eyes because it's going to get just more and more complicated as some of you have found out because you start to love everybody you see and as long as you're working on the deprivation model you want to collect each one at least get their telephone number for later in case sort of a security and it takes a long time to shift gears enough to be able to give up the deprivation model, to just rest in what is and not want anything and not feel you're going to need it later and be able to walk by somebody and look at them and love them immensely and not collect them. Not even grab at them, not even do a, or a, or a, or a let's have coffee, or a I love you, or, or even the eyes opening. You just walk by and you look at your beloved and you walk right on. Then in that quietness, you can begin to hear who it is you ought to be with for what reason. It's amazing how the nature of your relationships change when it's coming out of love instead of trying to get love. As long as I am one that needs love, I have to look into all of your eyes to say, am I doing enough so that you will love me? If I'm just resting in my being, I'm listening and I'm manifesting and you either love me or don't love me. That's your work. And you will open as you will open. And I want to tell you that as a yoga, it's a stinker. In fact, if you have a choice, use any other yoga but the yoga of relationship. Because it's one of the hardest yogas to use. Because it's working with reproduction and survival and a whole lot of things that make it almost impossible to stay awake in it. Pride, righteousness, all that stuff. Freedom of space and time and things like that. The third one of relationship is where two people are resting in the one and then they just play at the game of two. It's God at play as two. People are so rooted in their shared awareness and to fulfill the form of the formless, to just manifest impeccably they are the two and they dance together. The Leela, the play. They're no longer caught in the struggle between each other. They're resting in their oneness and they're dancing at the two. But the dance includes jealousy, anger, love, passion, boredom, disgust, loathing, love, sweetness, uh, tenderness, everything. It's all there. That's part of the, the passion play. It's part of what goes on in the forms. And remember, you are in the world but not of the world. 
So it doesn't mean all that stuff isn't there. It's all there. You're in the world. And it's real. And yet it isn't real. And sometimes two people are locked in, I hate your guts, you... And they can just barely look across at each other. You here? I'm here. We'll never get through this one. And then back into it. It's like the level at which people play tennis together. You compete in a tennis game. You try to beat the other guy. At the same moment, you both collaborated to come on the tennis court. So you are both collaborators and competitors. And what we call a bad sport is somebody who forgets that. Good sports are good losers or good winners because they understand it's a collaboration. But a bad sport is somebody who forgets it's a collaboration or is so collaborative, forgets it's a comp competition and gives away the game. That's not a good sport either. Good sport has to play hard and yet remember that it's a game. Now, the yoga of relationship, the second one, is where two people come together and they say, we would like to come together in order to find God, to be in God, to be with God, to be God, to be beyond God. Takes care of the personalist and the impersonalist. Hmm. Nowhere to stand, my love. A relationship that deals with truth walks the fine line between cosmos and chaos all the time. Because what is truth between two beings that even in our gross system are at least six planes? That's at least 12 people right there. So how can you have so much consistency? One moment, one of them is there in their body and they're feeling desire, and the other one is in the soul and feeling spacious. What do you do then? That's the one that comes to me and says, I just want God, and my husband just wants to go to bed all the time. Should I leave him? Now, the issue of leaving and staying with people is an interesting one in our culture. See, there are other cultures which have rules like in the old traditional India, a couple came together and they were betrothed and till death do us part and the partner went on the funeral pyre when the other one died. That's pretty much out of date these days. But still in a village I've lived in in India, the, the marriages are arranged by the astrologer and the couple marries wearing masks of Krishna and Radha and they don't even see each other till after the marriage. And they're going to stay together for life. Some of you shudder at that thought. What it's like when the mask comes off. 
We, have a, we can make a distinction in relationships between what we call given and acquired karma. Now, that's the word, these are the tech terms I use. I don't know whether they're traditional terms at all. Given karma is like my father. I can't trade him in. Well, Dad, you're not conscious enough. See you later. I'm going to get a more conscious father to work with. You know, you can't really do that. Can't do it with your children, you can't do it with your aunts and uncles. I mean, they're given karma. That's what you got this round. You created that from a soul's point of view for some work you got to do, and it's one that you're not going to be able to walk away from. You can try to walk away from by getting distance, but those of you that put distance between you and someone else because of some attachment, either hatred or love, know that you what is the distance? It's still going on in your head anyway. Then there is uh, acquired karma. That's where you are friends with someone because you're both in the bowling club. And then you stop bowling and your involvement with that person falls away. Because it was situational that you had a friendship or that you were with somebody. Where do marriages fit into that? Are they given or acquired? See, historically they were treated as you made a contract that made that relationship a given. You said it's like my father or mother or kids, I can't trade it in. But at this moment in California, 52% of the marriages end in divorce and 80% of the divorcees remarry. So what you have is serial monogamy. That's what you have. I mean, technically, an anthropologist would say that is a serially monogamous culture. No matter, you can impose your value judgments, that's values, but in terms of just the actuarial data, that's what you got. So it appears that we are moving towards treating marriage as an acquired rather than a given. You work with a person as long as it feels useful and then you go on and you say, see you later, and you end up and you say, we ended up perfect friends. We have both agreed, serial monogamy. Now, you, bo you have though, both kinds of relationships in your life, just like I do. And you can see the advantages and disadvantages of both. And you and I are in a culture where there's so much ambiguity about this issue. That that ambiguity awakens you to the nature of this kind of issue. It's an interesting position to be in, where you were in a culture where everybody did one thing or everybody did another. You wouldn't be awakened, you just automatically do it. But the fact that you have to constantly decide whether you're going to or not, each time it gets nitty-gritty, are you going to split or are you going to go deeper? Because nitty-gritty means you lock into a place where your pride and your righteousness and your models are in conflict. And it requires surrender. Not surrender to the other person, but surrender to the one that lies behind the two, again. Surrender to that part of you where it doesn't really matter that much. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. 
please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you. Thank you.